0: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 195 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. The ancient church of St Edward sits on a rural hillside overlooking Hopton Castle in rural Shropshire. It is quintessential England and in the churchyard in Black Granite is a headstone which is elaborately engraved with an architect's compass, a book, a typewriter, and scrolls. At the top of the picture is a large house with the following inscription Simon Dale, architect and scholar, who with his wife saved Heath House from demolition. Seventeenth of june nineteen nineteen to eleven stroke twelfth of september nineteen eighty seven. Rest in peace. Today, I tell the remarkable story behind this headstone, and a huge thank you to my listener who chose to remain anonymous, who brought this amazing story to my attention. Before we begin, a massive thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this most exclusive club. That is John Hamblin, Trish Swales, Lynn Proza, Rachel Godfrey, Lloyd Bennett, Julie Davis, Kelly Hines and Jennifer Tribon, who has increased her support. Thank you all so, so much. It is really, really appreciated. If you're not a member yet, come and join the party at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. I'm delighted that this episode is again sponsored by Wooga, the creator of June's Journey. Have you played it yet? Released almost three years ago, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game set in the 1920s with over 3 million active fans all around the world, including me. I love it as a game, as it's challenging but relaxing, and I love the beautiful, colourful detail of the game. Each of the scenes has been handcrafted. If, like me, you love the style of the 20s, you'll love it. And even if not, the detective in you will not be able to stop playing as you take on the role of June who returns home to the family's estate, only to find her sister murdered leading to a global quest to solve the crime. This is a free-to-download mobile game, available for free on mobile devices and on desktop through Amazon and Facebook. Come and join me and all the other players today. Download June's Journey for free from the App Store or Google Play, or by clicking the link in the show notes for this episode. Time to guess the month and the year, which is officially the Cardigan's favourite game, apparently. Oh dear. (laughs) It's a great gift to laugh at your own jokes. Rick Astley topped the charts with I'm Never Gonna Give You Up, almost sang it there, keeping the Fat Boys and the Beach Boys off the top spot with Wipeout. In the US, it was Whitney singing about Nottingham Forest with Didn't We Almost Have It All? And topping the Australian album charts this year was a haircut rivaling Michael Ball. It was John Farnham with Whispering Jack keeping crowded house from the top spot. In the news this month, US businessman Donald Trump took out a full-page New York Times ad lambasting Japan. In the second world championship in athletics, Carl Lewis, who was absolutely not a drugs cheat, won gold in the men's long jump. How he got away with failing so many drugs tests is pretty hard to comprehend, isn't it? Even for athletics. Ivan Lendl and Martina Navratilova won at the US Open. It was Lendl's third consecutive title. Alex Pullin, the Australian snowboarder who was tragically killed spearfishing last month, was born. And in UK true crime news, the government banned automatic weapons of the type used in the Hungerford Massacre. So did you guess the month of the year? It was September in 1987. Hopton Heath is a small hamlet in Shropshire, close to the Welsh border, and around 30 miles south of Shrewsbury. It's a beautiful, unspoilt part of the UK. Heath House is an old 12-bedroom country mansion in Hopton Heath that was built in around 1660 for a local squire. But like so many houses, this one has many, many tales to tell. In November 1968, a local GP, Dr Alan Beach, was enticed to the house by the husband, of a patient who had been diagnosed with cancer. The husband didn't agree with Dr Beach's diagnosis and he shot the doctor dead at the top of the driveway to the house. A terrible and pointless murder. But this isn't our focus today. Our story is from 20 years after the murder of Dr Beach. It was on the 13th of September 1987 that Simon Dale's lifeless body was found by Giselle Wall. He was in his kitchen surrounded by a pool of blood, there was still a burnt toad in the hole cooking in the oven. The police were called and it transpired that Simon had been murdered by being struck around the head of a hard, narrow instrument, probably a crowbar. A full glass of sherry was on the table next to the body. So let's find out a bit more about Simon Dale. Before his gruesome murder in 1987, the retired architect had lived in Hopton Heath for 30 years. It's fair to say that he fitted the role of the clichéd, eccentric, reclusive English gentleman. He loved his house, and over the years several parts of the grounds had been dug up, as Simon was convinced it was the site of King Arthur's legendary castle Camelot. He believed that King Arthur's round table was somewhere buried in the grounds, and at the time of his death, he was working on a book on this and telling how the legendary Holy Grail was buried in the area. Simon had certainly led an interesting life. He came from a middle-class upbringing in Oxfordshire, and as an architect his work focused on restoring country homes across the country. And then when he was 36 he met 23-year-old Susan Wilberforce, the great-great-granddaughter of William Wilberforce, the Victorian politician always associated with the abolition of slavery. Susan had experienced that awful upbringing. Of an upper class English woman at the time, characterized by a lack of affection, being always seen to do the right thing, the stiff upper lip, strong discipline, and living in big, often cold, and dilapidated country homes. Her education ended at Solihull Technical College. Oh, sorry, my mistake. With a finishing school in Paris. Her dad, Lieutenant Colonel William Wilberforce, died in the Second World War, and her mum remarried but she wasn't close to this side of the family. Her dad's sister, Lady Illingworth, more about her later, was a close, constant presence in her life. Simon quickly fell head over heels with Susan and they married in 1957. A friend, publisher Christopher Hurst, said that this marriage provided him with, and I quote, entry to the class he had courted professionally. And for Susan... Simon brought a solid presence and a grounding to her life. Together they dreamt of restoring a country house and they bought Heath House in 1959 using £2,000 of her inheritance. The house, well, it was a total mess, little more than an empty shell. In fact, the owners were delighted to sell to the couple as they planned to demolish it. Not all their friends shared their joy at the purchase as though the area is beautiful and rural, it's lovely and quiet, many felt it was somewhat gloomy and too isolated. Simon's friend, Christopher Hurst, again said, My heart sank at what they were contemplating. But with their first son, Alexander, they moved from their mansion flat in Old Brompton Road, South Kensington, to Shropshire. And over the next decade, they had four more children, Sophia, Sebastian, Marcus and Simon. And for 13 years they devoted their time and their limited financial resources to restoring the crumbling mansion of their dreams. If you've tried to restore any sort of property, it's hard work and it's certainly not cheap. And for the family it was an isolated life and an increasingly unhappy one with the children away at various boarding schools and Simon and Susan leading separate lives. Simon's eyesight was deteriorating and this understandably affected his mood. He wasn't picking up too much other architecture work, and his wife wouldn't work, so money was incredibly tight. All these events led the marriage to break down, and culminated in divorce in 1972, on the grounds of Simon's unreasonable behaviour, with Susan leaving the family home a year later. She would later claim that Simon was violent with the children, and was sexually very aggressive towards her, She claimed his behaviour was unreasonable, with him often wearing women's clothes, and that he once even dug a grave in the garden, saying it was for her. To quote Susan, one day I picked up my handbag, got in my car, and never went back. A part of the terms of the divorce was the sale of Heath House, with the profits to be split between them, but this sale never happened. Although this was partly due to house prices and the location, in reality, the main barrier to the sale was Simon's reluctance to move. He was increasingly certain that the house was of archaeological importance, not just the location of Camelot, but also the lost city of the ancient wandering Armenians and the centre of a pagan cult. And rather than work on architecture, Simon devoted his time to writing scholarly articles on King Arthur. In the 1970s, he told the Manchester Evening News newspaper, what I appear to have found are streets, 40 foot wide and 200 yards long, shops, houses. He was excited and certain of the significance of Heath House. The fact that none of his articles were published and the experts thought there was nothing at all in his claims made him even more determined to continue against what he saw as an establishment conspiracy against him. But with Simon earning no income, he lived a solitary life in just one of the 30 rooms of the house, the kitchen, and slept in a four-poster bed in one of the bedrooms. The remainder of the house gathered dust, with children's toys and other memories of happier family times discarded in other rooms. It must have been a lonely existence for Simon, although his children did still visit, although mainly with Susan to renovate the exterior of the house and gardens, making it a more attractive purchase. And he did make contact with some of the locals, who all spoke really highly of him. Veronica Garman was one who said, He had no money, of course, and I used to have to darn his only sweater. And Simon was not violent, never. He was a big, gentle man. And neither was he a recluse. He was just cut off in that big old house, and a bit lonely. We used to go around and cheer him up. Another neighbour, Bill Harper, said He was a reasonable chap, but eccentric. A five-star eccentric. He described the tall, balding, almost blind Simon walking across the fields in all weathers to the nearest village so he could buy a loaf of bread and cheese. Simon would make each loaf of white bread last for exactly two and a half days. By 1984, following the divorce, Susan had remarried in Jersey to a man who sounds straight out of a British comedy. His full name was Baron Michael Victor Yosef de Stempel, from a wealthy Russian émigré family, holders of an ancient Latvian title. Although in theory an economist, he never troubled himself with work, but he was a man about town, keeping a room at the Ritz and being seen in all the places that people like that need to be seen. He was later described by his own barrister in court as a monumental snob, a congenital liar, and a man without courage. You get the picture. He and Susan had been together before she married Simon, but she turned down his many proposals of marriage as he wasn't the solid, reliable man she wanted to be with. And Monsieur Le Baron, as he liked to be called, went on to marry three wives. Although all through his marriages he retained an affection for Susan and they stayed in contact. He even visited her at Heath House while she was married to Simon. But by 1982, both divorced, they resumed their relationship and the baron helped Susan financially. They went on to marry in 1984, but this wasn't a great success, with it reported that the baron refused to consummate the marriage, instead sleeping in a tent in the garden. Unsurprisingly, with his history, he struggled a bit with commitment and he soon started seeing other women. Later, he would say he'd only been technically married to Susan, whilst the whole time she was in fact fiscally married to Simon. The beauty of nuance, huh? Susan was devastated by this, writing letters proclaiming her love for the Baron, saying in one, My heart aches at the thought of being apart from you and at one stage to win him back, she even claimed to be dying of cancer. He really was the one love of her life. By 1986 they were divorced, although Susan did keep the title Baroness. And in autumn 1987, she leased a small workers' cottage named Forrester's Cottage, about 30 miles from Heath House, which she renamed Forrester's Hall. The reason she rented this place is that so she, along with three of her children, could continue to work on the restoration of Heath House ahead of its sale. By now the value had increased significantly from what the couple had paid, heading close to the half a million pounds mark. It is claimed that during this time she spied on her ex-husband, intercepted his mail and would sometimes jump out from bushes to startle his visitors. Theirs was certainly an odd relationship. Meanwhile Simon continued to write his books. Worried about the establishment conspiracy, he entrusted the typing of his manuscript to a care of a local woman, Giselle Wall, who said she'll bring it over to him as soon as it was completed. And on Sunday the 13th of September 1989, at about 4.20pm, she brought the finished piece of work to show Simon. It was a hot sunny day, but there was a light on in the kitchen and the shutters were all closed. As she came into the house, she was immediately aware of the heat. The cooker was still on with a toad in the hole that had been cooking badly burnt, and she was also aware of the dreadful smell. Looking on the floor, she saw Simon's body. He had been hit five times in the head, and there had been one fatal blow to his throat, smashing his larynx and crushing his windpipe, which led him to choke to death on his own blood. Detectives were called and could find no sense of a disturbance in the house and it looked like Simon had invited his killer into his home. What was the motive for this? Naturally, suspicion fell on his ex-wife, the Baroness, Susan de Stemple. When they went to Forrester's Hall to see her, detectives were struck by the complete lack of emotion she and her children showed about Simon's violent murder. When they searched her Peugeot parked outside, they found a newly cleaned and polished brass poker under the driver's seat. Susan said she kept it there for self-defence. She admitted that she had taken it from Heath House on the day that Simon was murdered, but denied any part in the murder. She said that on the Sunday night of the murder, she had raced home for 9pm to watch Agatha Christie's murder at the vicarage. She admitted breaking into the house on a regular basis, to steal furniture that she thought was rightly hers, and that this had led sometimes to confrontations with Simon. Susan and her children Sophia and Marcus were charged with his murder, although proceedings against the children were stopped after a few weeks. The trial took place at Worcester Crown Court and was an interesting affair, and great copy for the tabloids, who loved her haughty nature, nicknaming Susan the Ice Queen. The prosecution called on Simon's visitors the Friday before his death, He told how they saw her lurking in the shadows of the grounds. There was another local farmer, who told the jury just weeks before the murder that Simon had told him that he thought his wife was trying to kill him. And there was the clean crowbar found by detectives, which they suggested was the murder weapon. But there was no blood or other forensic evidence to support their case that Susan was the murderer. Susan's superior and arrogant nature was displayed with great effect against the QC for the prosecution, Anthony Palmer. When he suggested that she murdered her ex-husband, due to her frustration over the house dispute, she responded, I wish you would get into your head, Mr. Palmer, that I was not angry with Simon. He was a great nuisance, she testified, but I was not blazing mad. The whole case, she said, was against a woman made up by men. When questioned further, and Palmer again suggested she killed Simon, she just fixed him with a cold stare and icily replied, "Bollocks." Ian Bullock was the detective superintendent responsible for the inquiry, and he later told how amazingly composed Susan remained in what for anyone is a difficult and stressful situation. He told how after one of her two tiring days in the dock giving evidence, she looked at him and said, You do look tired, Mr Bullock. The case against her was weak, and the jury returned after just four hours with a verdict of not guilty of both murder and manslaughter. Susan showed no emotion at the verdict, and left the court to go home to Heath House, which was now, at last, hers. But if Susan hadn't killed Simon Dale, who had? Locally there were stories of hitmen who might have been hired, local disputes, and there was also talk of a mysterious hitchhiker who had been seen in the area. All we can say for certain is that nobody has ever been convicted of the murder of Simon Dale, and it seems that West Mercia Police have no plans to reopen the investigation. But the story doesn't end here. When detectives were at Susan's modest cottage investigating the murder, they were stunned by the quality of the furniture and the ornaments within, with one officer commenting, it was like a storeroom at the British Museum. And the financial checks carried out showed clearly just how the family had been able to afford these pieces. Back in 1984, Susan's daughter Sophia was working as a temporary secretary in London and she stayed with her relative, Susan's aunt we mentioned earlier, Lady Illingworth, the widow of Lord Illingworth, who came from a well-off Yorkshire family, and who had held the office of Postmaster General in government. Lady Illingworth lived for most of her life in one of London's most exclusive addresses, Grosvenor Square in Mayfair. Her husband died in 1942, and 25 years later, she sold their Grosvenor Square mansion and moved in with a cousin in Kensington. But by now in her 80s, she was suffering from Alzheimer's and Sophia brought her to stay with Susan and the family in Shropshire for a holiday. Little did she know just what this holiday would mean. It didn't take long after her arrival that the family decided to take their share of her wealth. After all, they needed cash to restore Heath House ahead of the sale, so why not? She was family after all. Her bank accounts were delved into, and after forging her signature, her shares were sold and the will was altered so that nearly everything she owned was left to Susan. The family plundered all the possessions she built up in her life. The paintings, jewellery, antiques, and anything else of value was either taken from her London home or out of storage to be sold at auction. And nine months later, they arranged for Lady Illingworth to be moved to a nursing home in Hereford telling social workers that they couldn't manage her at home because her Alzheimer's made it impossible. It later transpired that even Susan's trip to Jersey for the wedding to the Baron was funded by the sale of £13,000 worth of Lady Illingworth's jewellery. In the end, it was estimated by detectives that Susan and her children had stolen over a million pounds. Then after she died aged 86, Rather than follow the instructions in her will that she be buried next to her husband in the family tomb in Bradford, they instead arranged a very quiet cremation in Hereford without letting the rest of the Wilberforce family know. Her funeral bill was never paid, and when no one collected the ashes, they were scattered over the Garden of Remembrance. When the fraud trial reached court in Birmingham in 1990, Susan pleaded guilty. The jury heard Susan's children, Marcus and Sophia, so that they'd been manipulated by their mum in the fraud and the Baron, Michael, was also in court although he claimed to be, and I quote, merely a porter. But the jury rejected this narrative as the evidence clearly showed that the Baron had been central to changes made to Lady Illingworth's bank details and will. Demonstrating the same arrogance as Susan, the charming Baron said, it was about what I would have expected from a working-class jury. Susan was sent down for seven years, Baron Michael for four, Marcus for 18 months, and Sophia for four months. But even then there was further mystery around some gold bars. One of the workers who had moved most of Lady Ellingworth's possessions into storage told of some gold bars that had been in the basement of the house, with the story being they were looked after for a French family during the Second World War. It was suggested they were taken to a bank and then stolen during the fraud, with Susan and her children even issued writs in the slammer, asking for the return of 30 gold bars, each 18 inches long, with a total value of £12 million. The family dismissed this as nonsense, and despite police taking it seriously enough for searches to take place in the grounds of Heath House, the gold bars, if they ever existed, were never found. Terry Kirby, who wrote an amazing book on this story, referenced like all my sources in the show notes, says that after prison, Susan lived in Wales and London and that her relationship with the Baron did in fact resume. But it then petered out when she moved to Hastings on the south coast and became ill with heart issues. The Baron, meanwhile, was living with his second wife in a small terraced house in Acton, West London, the money of his youth, but probably not the arrogance all now gone. Kirby tells how Susan still adored the Baron and she sent a card to Darling Michael on his 75th birthday with the message Hurry up, it will soon be too late. And as for Heath House, let me quote Terry Kirby in an article he wrote for the Independent newspaper which says the following The deepest irony is that Susan can never return to Heath House, the place that consumed her money and energies help destroy her marriage, break up her family, and give two of her children criminal records. It was sold at auction to pay her creditors for £272,000 in 1993. In 2000, it was bought by a city figure for £1.5 million. Today, it must be worth several million pounds. To get there, you still take a sharp left off the main road, past the gate where Dr. Beach died, and plunge down the driveway through a copse. But now the grounds, once wild and unkempt, have been landscaped. And Terry speaks to the current owner, who tells him, I love it here, sweeping her arms to show the wide, lush green lawn, the pleasant shrubberies, and tall, mature trees. It is such a peaceful place. We're very happy here. Terry Kirby continues, Good luck to them, one feels. It is a warm, if showery, summer's day, but as we talk, that sudden cool breeze passes through the trees again, as if there was something unsettling just over the horizon. So what you make of what we've heard today? It is, I think, just the most remarkable story on so many levels. And of course, the main question we are left asking ourselves is just who killed Simon Dale? Is it a question we are ever going to find the answer to? Or as Heath House moves on to the next part of its life, is it going to keep hold of the secrets of its past forever? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of true crime, I suggest you talk to a pet or even yourself. If that doesn't hold much appeal, then why not join the conversation on the UK True Crime Facebook group. And to be with the opportunity of winning a non-life-changing prize of absolutely nothing at all, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime ahead of the non-existent deadline. Don't miss out. There you can find bonus episodes and all the behind-the-scenes stuff from the 37th most popular True Crime podcast and help me keep producing the show. That's patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that's all for me for today. Let's hope that lockdown eases in the northwest of England shortly, so we can all pay a visit to our favourite sauna soon. Get your best towels ready. So on that optimistic bombshell, thanks again for listening, and stay classy. Cheerio Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, uh-huh, in my dentist's office.